Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to another service, both online and in person. And as Orlando said just a moment ago, this is finally our last message from the book of Acts as we've been in this series for 25 weeks. We started in the middle of June, believe it or not, and here we are the final week. Next week, we start our Christmas series and we will also have communion next week, so be prepared for that. This particular book, the book of Acts in the Bible, documents for us one of the most dramatic and dynamic events in all of human history. And if you followed along over the course of these weeks, hopefully, as you've read in the book of Acts, uh, this, this story, this incredible story has been absolutely fascinating to you because it records for us the phenomenal and explosive growth that took place in the church throughout the first century. Today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 26, but before we do that, I just want to uh, take a few moments and rewind a little bit to remind us, to remind us of what this environment, where the church was in, what this environment was like before, before we move into the chapter. And maybe, maybe this rewind, this recapping in the next few moments will help us to understand Acts chapter 26 a little bit better. You see, during the first century, the religious scene, the environment was very interesting in the Roman Empire. The people in the first century were inundated with religious practices. There were all sorts of religious options that you could choose from in your life. Whatever experience you wanted, you could go to the various temples, the houses of worship, and find a particular God to help you with anything that you needed help with. It reminds me of the world religion of Hinduism. I've been to India and I've been in a, a Hindu temple. And when you go in a Hindu temple, you see all kinds of statues in the rafters of the temple. And there are millions of gods in the Hindu religion. That's similar to the type of religious fervor that was in the Roman Empire. There were all types of rituals. There were all kinds of gods. And people could participate and all kinds of events and series and gods. In fact, households had numerous statutes of gods within them. And yet, within the context of that society, and yet in all of the rigidly, rigid, religious activity that was transpiring, all this religiosity was confusing and contradictory to the people. Lots of strange religious practices, lots of gods, lots of religious opinions. And, and, and what made it so confusing to people is that they were unclear into actually what they were participating in. That brief religious snapshot of the Roman Empire, lots of religions, lots of confusing thoughts, lots of contradictory practices. People are trying to grasp at something and not really sure what they're grasping for. 
And they're all trying to make sense of the world, and yet while not quite making sure of the sense of their world that they were living in, some people were looking for stuff to satisfy their souls and to satisfy their spirit. They were looking for it in cognitive, rational mindset. Other people were looking for it in sexual experiences, but nothing was bringing satisfaction or purpose into their lives. And as you've read through the book of Acts, you've also noticed that many people were engaged in philosophical debate, trying to create a framework in order to understand the meaning of their life and the world around them. And out of this fog of religious pluralism, out of this fog of philosophical complexities, there arose a new story, the story of Jesus. It's not religion as usual. This story of Jesus was completely different. So instead of a God who was angry and you're trying to please God, Jesus introduces to us a God who is loving, a God who extends compassion, care, and grace. Instead of a God who is distant and removed, Jesus introduces a God who is near, a God who desires to be close, a God who desires to have fellowship with people. Instead of people striving for God's favor and earning God's favor, Jesus reveals to us that we clearly already have God's favor and that God is for us and not against us. This is really important for us to understand because Jesus delivered two things that all of these other religious endeavors within the empire, within the Roman world, could never deliver. And the first thing that Jesus delivered is that we can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. No other philosophical and no other religious thought None of it really told people about God. They did not know how to find a personal relationship with God. They were simply grasping and moving about blindly in the darkness of their belief structures. But when you know this God through Jesus, suddenly the created universe begins to make sense. When you know this personal God in your own life, all of a sudden there are changes that begin to take place personally in your life. Your character begins to realize, realize and change. There's a dynamic that begins to happen in a person's life. There's a writing of a new story, a new destiny, a new trajectory of your life is happening when you come into this personal relationship with God. And the second thing the story of Jesus did is that as you encounter, as you encounter a relationship with God in your daily personal life, there begins to happen tangible, real life experiences with God. Where you begin to say and you begin to realize this God that I now know this God is close to me. This God is guiding my life. 
His truth in my life that's changing me, his truth is giving me purpose and direction in life. We begin to experience, this is what the story of Jesus did, does. We begin to experience God through Jesus and in the revelation of the triune Godhead working, we begin to realize that this God wants to speak to us. That this God moves, that this God heals, that this God helps. This God that I now serve brings peace and delivers joy into my being. And when people begin to experience the tangible presence of an almighty God in their lives, people begin to live a new certain way towards one another and a certain new way in relationship to the community that is around them. As I've talked before, and as we've studied in the book of Acts, this Roman Empire that is throughout the book of Acts is a diverse empire. Religiously, ideologically, culturally, philosophically, it's incredibly diverse. Yet in the midst of this convoluted mixture, in all of the morass of all this stuff that is happening in the lives of people, the people who follow Jesus began to live in such a way where they began to love one another in Christ, they began to love one another in community, but they also began to embrace others in the secular world in a manner that the message of Jesus became compelling to people. People saw something in, in all of this convoluted mess of life in the Roman Empire. People saw something in Christians that was not only unifying, but was also life-giving. We need to understand that. And in the book of Acts, this new identity of who these Christians were was called the way. We see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, where there's a brief description of the Apostle Paul who, who was at that time chasing after and, and, and thwarting uh, Christians who were following. He mentions that any, he was arresting any followers of the way, the Bible says. That's the description of these Christians, the way. The way describes the people who know God. The way is describing people who are experiencing God, God's presence on a daily basis. The way is describing people who are living differently in the world. And the way is describing people who spread throughout the world and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And when they did with congruency, that people saw, people saw that what they said and what they preached and how they lived was similar, it became enticing to people. And they wanted to join this life, new life pattern for their lives. So city after city, culture after culture, person after person began to experience God for the very first time in their lives. This gospel, the gospel of Jesus, 
being lived out by the followers of Jesus was something beautiful, it was something attractive, and it was something compelling to the people. So the book of Acts that we've studied for the past 25 weeks has detailed for us these events. So what you and I need to understand as we come to the conclusion and what we need to be reminded of today as we have studied in the book of Acts for the past 25 weeks is that our culture today is very similar to the culture that you see and read about in the book of Acts. There has never been a season, there has never been a time in human history that is more like the time period than the one that we are currently living in right now, today. There's never been another time like that. We might be more, oh yeah, we might be more technologically advanced, but, but today, humanity is still facing life that is similarly eerily as it was back in A.D. 60. People today are still confused. People today are still searching. People today are not sure what they are reaching for. They have limited life purpose. People today are still lost. And people today are still trying to make sense of the world around them. Looking for satisfaction. Looking for experiences that soothes the ache within their soul. Now one objection you may have right now. And you may be asking yourself this. You might be saying, well, wait, wait a second, wait a second, Pastor. People today aren't responding to the message of Jesus. They're not responding as they did back in the book of Acts. I've been reading the book of Acts, and there are multitudes and thousands and thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Christ. There was an explosion of faith back then. All these people are believing and all these cities and all these cultures are being shaped in a new way. I've been reading in the book of that. That's not happening today. Can I remind everyone that the spirit of the living God is just as alive today as it is back then? And there are people who are experiencing and people who are responding today to the message of Jesus. And it is happening today around the world that is not so far off to what people were experiencing in the book of Acts. But let me also remind you, you have to keep this in mind as well, that not everybody today, as in the first century, responded to the gospel message. Not everybody today jumps in, as they did back then, jumped in to follow Jesus. There were people in the book of Acts who said, I don't want any part of this. There were people who said, I don't want to be associated with this. There were people who said, the implications, the implications are too drastic. I'm not joining the way movement. I'm not going to be a part of that. But what if, for those who rejected Jesus, the chains that held people back then are the same chains that hold people today? 
What if the same things that created opposition in their hearts are the same things that create reluctance to the gospel message in the lives of people today? And that's what brings us to Acts chapter 25 and, verse, and chapter 26. As we learned over the last few weeks, Paul has returned to Jerusalem and things are not well. By this time, Paul has been in, but when we get to Acts chapter 25 and, and chapter 26, Paul has been in jail for two years awaiting trial. And during this time, a new governor has been appointed by the name Festus. What's really interesting to me, you can Google Festus, and you begin to see that here's a description of a man that is also a historical figure. You can follow the life of Festus online. You can read about him. This is a real person. Now, I don't know anybody who would want to be named Festus, but this was a real person. A new governor was appointed in chapter 25 named Festus. And Festus, as the new governor of Rome, wants to gain favor and recognition among the Jewish people among the Jewish constituents, and he agrees to put Paul on trial at the request of the Jewish leaders. But as a Roman citizen, Paul appeals to Caesar, and look at this, in Acts chapter 25, verse 21, what it says. Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor, so he ordered that he be held in custody until he could arrange to send him to Caesar. Now, besides Festus, the governor, there is a king that Rome has appointed over this region, a Jewish king. His name was King Agrippa II, appointed by Rome. And in chapter 25, you read about this king, King Agrippa, arriving to meet Festus, the new governor, and Festus tells King Agrippa about Paul, who he wants to put on trial, but now that Paul has appealed to Caesar, he needs to send him to Rome. And as they talk it over, they determine that in order for Paul to be sent to Rome, they need to present a clear case against him. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 25, verse 27. For it makes no sense to send this prisoner, meaning Paul, to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. Now we are in Acts chapter 26, and it's the opportunity for the Apostle Paul to explain his case before King Agrippa. And as a result of him explaining his defense, we find three, there are three underlying hindrances in this description Three underlying hindrances as to why people don't experience everything that God has for them. So we begin reading. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders, for I know you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. So Paul identifies here with King Agrippa, and as a fellow Jew, 
He wants him to know what he is talking about. He knows what he is talking about. But notice this, that Paul compliments him. As he begins his defense, he compliments him and he builds him up. It's a great way to start your defense. If you're ever in court, great way to address the judge that is overseeing your trial. Okay, compliment. Goes on to say in verse 4, As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was giving a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they would know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest set of our religion. Now I, am, now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Now, here's something that we need to understand. It's important for us to recognize what is happening here. Paul is saying that he is specifically on trial because he has hope in something. And that those Jewish leaders who are putting him on trial actually should have the same hope. He is being accused by the Jews, he is saying, this is what Paul is saying, he's being accused by the Jews of believing the very same things that traditionally and historically in their religion they should also be believing in. Yet he is on trial. And it goes on to verse 8. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Why does it seem so incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? See, what essentially Paul is saying is this. I'm on trial because I believe this. I believe that God can raise the dead. Now, to the Jewish people who are witnessing this, the religious leaders, he is saying, with all of your religious knowledge, with all of your religious opportunities, with all of your proclamation of religiously following God, how can you doubt that the God that you proclaim can actually raise the dead? In other words, how small is your God that you are now thinking that it is impossible for God to raise the dead? And I'm sure there were other non-Jewish people and non-Jewish observers in this room. And the question in verse 8 to those who have other beliefs or other religious systems or thought, the question that Paul is asking in verse 8 brings up another point. He is saying, if you're not Jewish, does your belief system, does your religion reach beyond life? Does your religious system reach into death? Does your religious system provide you hope beyond the present? In other words, does your God in your religious belief structure have power? That's what he's asking in verse 8. And to everyone in that room listening to Paul's defense, they are 
every single one of them, every single one of them is being confronted personally. Do you believe that God is God? And if you say you believe in God, then why do you have issues with me? And then Paul, in the next few verses, goes through his personal testimony about persecuting Christians and counting Jesus on the road. And we pick up the story in verse 19. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven, he says. I preach first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove they have changed by the good things they now do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up until this present time, so I can testify to everyone, from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. In essence, what Paul is saying in these verses is this. I would be disobeying God if I did not, from my experience of encountering God, if I did not go and tell people what I experienced or what I encountered on that road to Damascus, I would be disobeying God by not telling others what happened in my life. And then something crazy happens in verse 24. Suddenly, the Bible says, as Paul, as Paul is describing this, this his, his belief system and what transpired in his life, suddenly, verse 24, Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. And Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Complimenting him again. What I am saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa, because he's Jewish, King Agrippa knows about these things. And I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? That verse, verse 28, is probably the most heartbreaking verse in the New Testament. And if you do a deep dive into the language of this verse, it indicates that Agrippa is saying, you are about to convince me to become a Christian. In other words, Paul, if you keep talking and if you keep describing your conversion experience to me, you are convincing me. Verse 29, Paul replies, 
whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. I think that this verse reflects the heart of not only Paul, but also everybody who has truly experienced the grace of God. Apart from these chains, apart from the trials that I might be experiencing, apart from the injustices that I might be experiencing in my life, beyond my present circumstances, beyond my present situation, there is a freedom that can be internally attained beyond my physical and present external circumstances, no matter what I am facing in life, I can have a freedom within my soul in spite of the chains that I might be experiencing in my life. Very important to understand that aspect of our Christian faith. While we don't always necessarily like what we are experiencing in life, and there is pain, and there are frustrations, and there are upheavals, and there are circumstances that undermine our purposes, and our goals, and our directions in life, you can still have peace, and you can have a freedom, and a joy that supersedes all the experiences, and all the pain that you might experience in life. Then the king, verse 30 says, the governor and Bernice and all the others stood and left. And as they went out, they talked it over and agreed, this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And that concludes our reading in the book of Acts. But there's a powerful, powerful message. There's a powerful message here for us all to think about and to be challenged with. This isn't just a cursory reading without doing a deeper dive on how these verses affect our life. Certainly, certainly these words are meant for Paul, but I think they describe everything in the audience then and everything in the audience for us today. Whether you are here in the sanctuary or whether you are watching online, the words are meant for Paul. You could have been set free. Those words mean something, not only for the people who heard those words back then, but also for us today. You could have been set free. In other words, people choose, listen, people choose their own chains rather than freedom that can be found in Jesus. You see, even though Paul was in prison, it was not Paul who was in prison, it's humanity that's in prison. It's not Paul who is in chains, it's people. It's people of the world who are in chains. 
And Paul's story and Paul's life was changed with the encounter of a Savior, Jesus. And every person in the world has an opportunity to see their life changed, their life changed through Jesus Christ. And the question Every single person, whether you're here in the sanctuary, whether you're watching online, the question all of us should be asking is this. Why do people choose to live a life of bondage? Why would people, when presented with an opportunity to know God, to know Jesus, experience God in a life-transforming and life-changing way, why do people push that opportunity away from them? Listen, even if you have said yes to Jesus, I don't care how long in the past, I don't know how many years, when you said yes to Jesus, these verses are for you as well. These, this verse, you could have been set free. This verse is for you as well. Because I believe, listen, I believe no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been a participant in the way, I don't care how long you have believed in Jesus, Jesus has more for you to experience than you are presently experiencing. I believe that when you believe in Jesus, Jesus wants us to truly, intimately know him more than you know him today. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants us to dynamically live in a realm that is beyond the normal. And no matter where you are, no matter how long it has been, no matter where you find yourself on your personal faith journey, there are three things that continually rise to the surface that hinder us from knowing God on a deeper personal level. And these are the chains that hold people back from experiencing everything that God has available for them and for us. The first hindrance that keeps us from experiencing God is fear. If you look closely at Paul's defense, Paul is addressing the Jewish leaders who were not willing to let God be God. They had the religious norms, they had all of the religious structure, and there was this underlying concept within their religion, this fear of God that, that God may be someone that they didn't expect. This fear that God may include people that they never sh should expect to be included. I see this happening today all the time when I hear people say, I don't know if I can believe in God because, and you can fill in the blank. That's what we do today. We craft a God of our own imagination. But when we craft a God after our own imagination, we are chained to a belief system and God can't get into it and, and we can't believe that God is capable of doing certain things. What if the reason God can't move in our lives or in your life specifically because of your limited belief in what God is capable of doing? What if the next move of God in your life is limited because you think God can't do this and God doesn't move in this kind of way? What if it is us who limit the potential and opportunity for God to move dynamically in our life? 
But what if God is capable of doing something beyond your imagination? Do you really believe that God can supersede who you think he is? Do you really believe that God can operate and work and do things beyond your imagination? Or do you become suspicious of God when he moves in certain ways that you are uncomfortable with? See, some people are chained to a belief in God of their own making. They set these parameters and they, they put these these things in place on how they think God should operate and if they can't properly imagine in their mind that God is a certain, can operate in a certain way, they limit God in what he is capable of doing. Literally, people put God in a box and they limit him and they have limitations on him and they put boundaries on how they think God operates. Can I tell you this morning, Church, God is bigger and more pronounced and far greater and beyond anything that you can ever imagine or expect. The second thing we need to understand that hindrance that that that, that is a hindrance from and keeps us from experiencing God is spiritual numbness. This is found in Festus. If you read about Festus, particularly when Festus shouts that Paul is crazy in verse 24. In our culture today, in our culture today, we usually call people crazy when they see things that nobody else sees. And what Paul, when Paul is describing these spiritual realities to someone of what he experienced in God, he's, he's describing things that this person, Festus in this particular case, is completely oblivious about, and he is completely rooted in physical realities. In other words, Festus finds meaning only in stuff that he sees life provide for him. The physical. What he can see, what he can touch, what he can observe, Everything with his physical senses. Festus is chained. His chains are spiritual numbness. And today, church, listen, we can miss. We can miss God's providential movement because we also can become spiritually numb by focusing only on spiritual realities which desensitized, which has desensitized us to the realities that there could be and is, there's another world around us that is unseen. If we could pull back the curtains right now, if you could open the blinds spiritually, you would see another world that a lot of us sometimes discard and neglect. Can I remind you today, can I remind you that there is indeed a world beyond what you see physically with your own eyes? 
There is a spiritual world that is equally real as the physical world that you are living in today. Dimensions that we can't see with our physical eyes. But there are spiritual realities that run parallel to the physical realities even at this very moment. And Festus, Festus can't imagine a world where things can't be seen because all his identity is found in what is in front of him. All he can see is what is there physically. And for us, listen, for us, if our identity is only found in what can be seen physically, if only our purpose and our values, if it doesn't go beyond what we see or experience in a particular moment, then we don't need God who goes beyond. But what happens when the physical world fails? You may think you don't need God or you don't even believe in a God who exists in this new spiritual reality until the physical fails, until your body begins to break down until your achievements fail, until your money disappears, or until the drug-induced high fades away, then what? Then what about your life? You might not need God. Listen, you might not need God now. But where will your life be when the physical fails? Where will your life be? And then there's a third hindrance that keeps us from experiencing God. I don't know if this is a real word, but lukewarmness. I know the real word, word is lukewarm, but is there such a thing as lukewarmness? There's something very sad in Agrippa's comment when he says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian? The thing of it is, is that Agrippa knows. He knows the Jewish traditions that Paul is talking about. He knows that there is truth in what Paul is saying. Yet it seems like his, his feet are planted. It seems like his feet are planted in two worlds. There's a part of Agrippa where he understands what Paul is saying. He identifies with it. But then there's also this part where he has this allegiance to Rome. And he has a significant part to play in the kingdom of Rome. See, what you need to understand about King Agrippa is that he is chained in two worlds. We can also become chained. We, we think that we can live in two places. We think that we can have a spiritual life and we can think that we can have a robust physical life in the world. We, we think that we can live in two spaces. I can do both. I can do simultaneously, people think. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can purpose my life in both categories, in the world and in the church, in my life with Jesus. I can live in both aspects with equal vigor. Can I remind you what Jesus said? Jesus used the word for that. He uses the word lukewarm. He uses the word double-minded. He uses the word divided heart. Those are the words Jesus 
describes for this attitude where we think we can be both. Experience God and experience Jesus and yet at the same time live in the pleasures that the world provides. The irony is that, that Paul with his chains is looked upon as a prisoner, but in reality, he should be looked upon as someone who is free because he received redemption in the life of Jesus. And throughout the gospel that he preached, Paul would constantly talk about laying down your life, submitting wholeheartedly to the way of Jesus. And when you commit fully 100% to Jesus, that's when you find life, and that's why, and that's when you find freedom. On this point, as we close, we need to individually ask ourselves, am I totally submitted to Jesus? Are we, as a church family, totally submitted to Jesus? Or do we waver between trying to be a good Christian while at the same time trying to pursue what the world has to offer? While at the, being a Christian while at the same time pursuing pleasure, pursuing a career that, that at the expense of our faith? Or do we keep Jesus at an arm's length away from us because we don't want to give everything to Jesus because we want to hold on to some stuff? We want to hold on to our pleasures. We want to hold on to our personal commitments rather than sacrificing and volunteering for Jesus. We think we can do both. So the question is, are we totally, completely sold out? And does Jesus reign supreme in our hearts and in our lives? Listen. The Holy Spirit today wants to capture your heart and my heart. He wants to capture our life with the endless possibilities of a new dynamic that you and I can experience when we wholeheartedly submit our lives to Jesus. And that's the story that can be found in the book of Acts. And to the degree that we totally, completely surrender our lives, to that degree, we continue the story of Acts in our day and in our age right now. See, the book of Acts continues in our lives. We are Acts chapter 29. That's us. And the only way that that can happen is if you allow the Holy Spirit to bring guidance and life into your being and you see Jesus and you follow Jesus wholeheartedly and with complete commitment. Will you stand with me as we pray today? And if you are at home Maybe you want to stand where you are, seated right now, seated right now, and, and just agree with me as we pray, and then our worship team is going to come and lead us in another song of worship. 
But I want you to really zone in and focus in on your level of commitment and of your openness to God's Spirit in your life. Father, we stand here as your representatives on this world. Give us the fortitude. Give us the openness. Give us the ability to see you move dramatically and dynamically in all of our lives. Move through this church, I pray, and let the fullness of your Spirit reside in us today and until the day that you call us home. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's worship him together.
I just want to pray a special benediction over all of us, whether you are in the sanctuary or whether you are watching by home today, wherever you are and you're experiencing this gathering of believers, I just want to put a special benediction over all of you today. May you, as God's people, continue to live life open to the experience of my spirit saith the Lord. Walk in the fullness of what I can do through you when, your, when my spirit is upon you. And when you live life, may you walk in the goodness and in the grace and in the power of my Holy Spirit. And when you do, may you influence the world around you with the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you all. We're going to say goodbye to those of you who are watching online, but for those of you in the sanctuary, we're just going to sit a moment. I just have a few words to share with you. Have a great week, everybody who's online. God bless you, and we hope to see you real soon in the sanctuary. Take care. God bless you.